Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I have a graph I want to show you as we get started here. Now, there's the graph. There's not much context to it. No numbers behind it. Any idea what this graph is depicting? Maybe this graph is showing a particular stock in the stock market or two stocks and they've not fared particularly well. They've slowly and steadily declined. Maybe this is showing air temperature in the state of Michigan. And uh, that sudden decline happened somewhere around November 1st. Uh, perhaps this is um, cashier patience on Black Friday. <laughs> and it started at some point as they were drinking coffee and enjoying it, and then it just slowly and steadily dropped with each and every transaction. Uh, I can even put the numbers up here, but it probably won't help you. Still any idea? This is usage of the word kingdom over the last 400 years. You were going to get that eventually, right? <laughs> if I gave you like five more seconds, you would have figured this out. Usage of the word kingdom over the last 400 years. A Google is able to do this. Uh, what Google does is they take published books over the last 400 years, and they can search a particular word to show how popular, uh, how frequently that word is used. And here we have the word kingdom over the last roughly 400 years. And what do you notice? It's in decline. Uh, for the last maybe 250, 300 years thereabouts, it hasn't been used all that often. Uh, if you're into history, you might realize that the time it begins to decline is somewhere around the time of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is this period of history where there's a renewed zeal and excitement for democracy. And there's also this great uh, skepticism and questioning towards kings and kingdoms and, and monarchies. And with good reason, as we look throughout human history, we can find a whole lot of kingdoms, a whole lot, many kings who have used power in really horrible ways. Uh, we can think of a handful, maybe even dozens, of kings and kingdoms that under that king's reign and rule, there was pestilence poverty, a death, despair, destruction. We can think of kings in history who sent people to die so that their kingdom could be preserved. Sent people to die so that they might gain a little narrow strip of land. Bad kings have made us wary of kingdoms. And that graph shows you perfectly. Bad kings have made us wary of kingdoms. Now in the Gospel of John, John 18, the gospel reading that we heard today, we hear about kings, we hear about kingdoms. That is the theme throughout this entire chapter. Chapter 18 of John, it's near the end of Jesus' ministry. At this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been doing miracles, healing people, raising people from the dead. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's gone to the Last Supper with his disciples, gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, He's been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested. And then John 18. We hear about Jesus standing before three kings. Three kings. Annas, Caiaphas, and Pilate. 
Now, to be precise, they're not kings exactly. Okay, their title is not king. Uh, Two of them are high priests. One of them is a governor within the Roman Empire. They're not exactly kings, but they are functionally kings. Their job is almost synonymous with that of a king. They do kingly things. They have the final say on certain matters. They reign and they rule over a particular jurisdiction or territory. So it's not a stretch for us to call them kings. Uh, The first one that Jesus goes before is Annas. John 18 tells us this, uh, verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Annas is not exactly the high priest anymore. He was the high priest for several years, but then the Roman Empire fired him. Uh, They deposed him of that job in 15 AD, but... Annas is still treated like he's the high priest. People come to him with important questions. They listen to what he says. Uh, In fact, Bible commentators think that Annas is the one who really had the power. That Caiaphas, the actual high priest at the time, his son-in-law, he was just a puppet. That Annas was really calling the shots. So they bring Jesus before Annas, and Annas begins to question him about his teaching. And Jesus says this, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus is saying everything I've spoken, everything I've taught has been in the open. It's been public. Annas, you should know what I preach and teach. It's out there for everybody. And at this, one of the guards hits Jesus. He strikes him. And he says, is that how you talk to the high priest? And then Jesus responds with this. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas, this so-called king, he has an opportunity. He has an opportunity in this moment Before Jesus, he has an opportunity to do something right, to do something good. And what does he do? Neither of them. He passes Jesus on to Caiaphas. He uses his power to protect his power. He uses his power to save himself. He passes Jesus on. So then Jesus goes before Caiaphas. The Gospel of John doesn't tell us much about the interaction between Jesus and Caiaphas. The Gospel of Matthew, however, does. So we go over to Matthew and we hear this. Jesus goes before this king and he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, Caiaphas says, okay, Jesus, settle it once and for all. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus responds, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Translation, Jesus says, Yes, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah, the Anointed One. You will see me at the right hand of power, at the right hand of God. And Caiaphas This so-called king, he refuses. 
to consider the possibility that what Jesus is saying is actually true. I mean, Caiaphas knew the healings. Caiaphas knew about all the miracles. Caiaphas must have known about the people that Jesus had raised from the dead, but still, he would not consider the possibility that he was actually the Messiah, the anointed one. So what does he do? He passes Jesus on. He takes his power, uses it to maintain his power. He takes his power to save his own life. So then Jesus goes before one final king, the third king, Pilate. Now Pilate uh, is unlike the other two. The first two, they worked for the Israelites. Pilate works for the Roman Empire. Uh, His boss is Caesar. Uh, And kind of an interesting side note, Uh, 1961, archaeologists uh, found this. It's called the Pilate Stone. And what it has on there, you can see some writing. You can see it's broken, kind of fragmented. But that writing is Latin, uh, and it's Latin fragments. Uh, And this is what archaeologists have translated it to say. Uh, To the divine Augusti Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. Oh, that Pilate stone, what that is, is that's called extra-biblical evidence. Uh, that is something that archaeologists have found that corroborates the story of Scripture, the text of Scripture. So when the Gospels talk about Pontius Pilate reigning and ruling during this time, archaeologists have found things that say, yeah, he was a real guy, and he really reigned and ruled during this particular time in this place. So kind of, like I said, it's an aside, but it's important to realize there's extra-biblical evidence pointing to the fact that The Gospels are accurate. So Jesus goes before Pilate, this real historical person, and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Two things Jesus makes exceedingly clear. I am a king. My kingdom is unlike any other kingdom in this world. And Pilate, just like the other ones, he has an opportunity to do the right thing, to do a good thing, to to save Jesus and let him go, to protect him, and he doesn't do any of them. But he passes Jesus to the cross. He takes his power, he clings to it, protects his power, saves his own life. Three bad things kings and one good king one good king Jesus standing before each and every one of them Annas Caiaphas and Pilate three bad kings and one good king and in this we see this sharp contrast of the kings of this world and we see the king of heaven and what we realize is that Jesus is a king unlike these other kings he's a king unlike any king we've ever known he is the good king And he reigns and rules over the only truly good kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. It takes three bad kings, one by one, for us to see clearly. Jesus is the good king ruling in the good kingdom. His kingdom is unlike any kingdom in this world. Just think about how he entered into this world. God, the God of all creation, uh, upon his throne in heaven, coming down into the brokenness of a fallen world, into the brokenness of your sin and into my sin. And God takes on human flesh in Jesus, and he comes, this king of creation, 
But how does he arrive? Into a palace? No. A manger. A barnyard. The lowliest of places. And then these visitors from the east come and they say, where's the king? And where do they go? A palace. A place where you look for a king. They ask King Herod, where is this newborn king? Where do they find him? In a manger. In a barnyard. Not wearing a golden crown, but wearing a crown of of golden hay upon his head. And then how does he live? Does he live in a palace with plush purple robes? No. Simply. Humbly. Walking around with sandals and dust on his feet. His hands are chapped and weathered from work. He goes around, instead of just engaging social elites and and the highest of the high, Jesus engages the lowest of the low, the rejects, the people who have been ostracized from the rest of the world. He goes around and he takes palsied limbs and he makes them strong, empty bellies. He fills them. He reunites families because death has separated them. He proclaims the coming of the kingdom of God and in the greatest moment of his kingship, the most kingly thing he does on the cross, taking his power and giving it up, letting go of his power for you and for me, giving his life to save our lives. See, kings don't do that. The kings of this world do exactly the opposite. The kings of this world cling to their power, never letting go of it, to maintain it. They send others to die so that they can live. That's what we expect from kings. But King Jesus turns that all on his head, giving up his power, giving up his life for his subjects, for his people, for you, for me. He is a good king, and he rules over a good kingdom. And we've been thinking a lot about kings in my house. This past couple of weeks, we've been thinking about kings and kingdoms because we've been reading the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, to my daughter. And we've been reading this book, and it's a book that both my wife and I love, and it's been a great joy that we got to to read this to our daughter. And if you're familiar with the book, it's by C.S. Lewis, and it's a fantasy book, but it's also an allegory. It's an allegory for King Jesus, uh, for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And in this book, there's this uh, Christ figure. His name is Aslan, and he's a lion, but he represents Christ throughout the book. Uh, And just like Christ, Aslan gives his life for somebody else. And there's this powerful moment, I want to read it to you, this powerful moment uh, where the, 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 the main characters, the children in the story, first hear about this king, about Aslan. And here's the conversation. There's this uh, beaver, his name is Mr. Beaver, aptly named, I guess. But he can talk, and he, he talks to this young girl named Susan. He says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that line, I think one of the best lines in the whole book, but that line, we had to unpack that as we read it to our daughter. How can this king, Aslan, this Christ figure, how can he be not safe, but good? 
And we realize because he's so powerful, because he's a lion, because he's the king of Narnia, he's not safe. He's powerful, but he's good because he takes that power. He takes that strength and he takes that might and he uses it for other people. Not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Friends, that is Jesus. He's strong. He is powerful. He's the creator of all things, heaven and earth. He's the judge and the ruler of all. Powerful. But he's good because he uses that power not to exploit, not for violence, not to hurt or to harm, not not for his own gain, but he uses that power for you, for me, for our benefit, for our well-being, for our life. And through faith in him, you are part of the kingdom of God. And that means Jesus is your king. And that means whatever's going on in your life right now, Jesus is bigger. Jesus is stronger. Whatever guilt or regret or hurt, whatever burdens are on your mind and on your heart and on your soul, whatever sins are are, are clinging onto you and dragging onto you, whatever they are, they are not bigger than King Jesus. They are not more powerful than his kingdom. Jesus, the good king, Jesus, he rules and reigns over the greatest kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. This is most certainly true. Now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.